This is a Momentum Media production. Investing insights with Right Property Group. Exploring trends in real estate and helping property investors gain financial security. Oh, good day. How are you going? Phil Tarrant, uh, co-host, Investing Insights, Right Property Group, joined by Steve Waters and Victor Kumar. Those guys are directors over the Right Property Group. We get together once a month to chat through what's going on in property. Uh, at this for quite some time now uh, resonated really well. We've helped in many ways steer um, our listeners through the COVID pandemic and out of it and now into this new cycle, which is identified by rising inflation and um, a property market that's certainly in a state of flux. But when you see flux in property is where some people see opportunities and some people see doomsday predictions. It depends which way you choose the world, see the world. But uh, three of us like to think of probably more positive than negative people. We're realists. Uh, we'll break down and break apart those concerns when it comes to property markets and look for the angle and the angle being, okay, is it time to get stuck in? Is it time to get involved? Is it time to buy? Is it a time to sell? And we'll play the right hand depending on the environment that we operate within. So uh, I want to get a sense of it today. Steve Waters, Victor Barr in the studio. Gentlemen, how are you going? Yeah, well, mate, it's uh, first for the year. It's good to be back after a, an extended break in and around Christmas. But having said that, I it's almost like I feel we're halfway through the year already. Like the tempo is just enormous. Yeah. You know, in terms of the amount of news, I guess, oh, yeah. that's out there, it's just like how much can you absorb? There's a lot of noise out there. And um Vic, I've known you for many, many years. You're quite good at filtering all of that sort of stuff and working out what you're going to do about it. Yeah, it's all all putting things into perspective, right? Because like Steve said, there's a lot of noise around. And you need to just have the right filter to decide what that noise means to you, as opposed to, you know, crying chicken little and the sky is falling in uh, sort of scenario, uh, which seems to be, you know, the flavor of the month because we're talking about cliff edges. We're talking about, you know, the big bust coming through. The reality of it is that uh, when we have a strong rise in property prices, there's going to be some level of correction. There's got to be some level of resettling of the new norm before the new cycle takes up. And that's uh, for people who've been in and around property for some time, they have an appreciation that uh, property doesn't always go up, but moves in cycles. The long-term trend for property is growth. It just depends when you get in and out of properties, whether or not you're the beneficiary of that. A lot of property is about timing, um, but the most successful investors I know, and and both you gents obviously included in this, um, they've been through many market cycles. And the longer you're in property and more market cycles you see, good and bad, uh, typically if you're buying well, you'll be a successful investor. And what success means in property is something that we've been talking about for years on Investing Insights of the Right Property Group. Uh, so you can go back and tune into a lot of that sort of stuff. But for me, being connected in with the news cycle, being connected in with what the media is saying, being connected in as a property investor myself, no doubt I'm having a lot of the the thoughts and sentiments that both of you guys are having, and that is, okay, it's a rising rate environment. We saw just this month uh, another hike in interest rates, which by memory is the ninth consecutive. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah 25 basis points. A lot of heat on the Reserve Bank Governor, Dr. Lowe. We don't really need to get into that, no doubt. You guys probably watched him a little bit on the Senate inquiries recently, uh, getting grilled. And the big point was, well, you told Australians uh, that you were going to raise interest rates at 2024, and now you've hit them with nine in a row, the highest, fastest spike in history to a point now where most Aussies are, are paying 6% on their mortgages rather than 
2% on their mortgages, and that's hurting a lot of them. He's copped a fair bit of flack. Like, he didn't know that the war in Ukraine was going to happen. He didn't know a lot of this sort of stuff. So, you know, this is not a beat up on him, but I think a lot of people got annoyed with his response around, uh, are you going to resign uh, as a Reserve Bank governor because you got this so wrong? And he went, I've got a seven-year term. I'm going to stick it out. Yeah, that's I, probably annoyed. But I think, um, yeah, the psychology of us humans is we we just need to blame. Mm. And, yeah, he's at the coalface. Yeah, I remember watching a 60 Easy minutes. target, by the way. Easy oh, target. Very easy. You know, and, and and certain things of the media, Steve, will just go, and he earns a million dollars a year. He's not like yeah. us, us yeah, Australians. Yeah, he can yeah. afford it. But I remember years ago watching a, a 60 Minutes report with him or on him, and, yeah, he was the – he was godlike, mm. you know, back then, you know, the most sort of thought processing beyond his years, better than anybody that's ever been. But you put a little bit of negativity, such as nine straight rises, contradicting what he thought would happen, emphasis on the thought, and suddenly he's probably Australia's most wanted man in the negative. You know, like, <laughs> he's certainly not going to win any popularity contest, but, you know, to be fair to him, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of moving pieces behind the scenes that he couldn't know that was going to happen. And even some of those things that, yeah, even some of the things such as, yeah, the pandemic and COVID, yeah, that was the first and one off. So governments and banking systems around the world acted on what how they thought it would help the economies. Having said that, I think as as people, if we thought for one minute that whilst governments and banking systems around the world were printing trillions upon trillions of dollars that we wouldn't have inflation as a consequence, well, then we had our heads buried in the sand. This moment in time was always going to happen. And that's the appreciation that property investors need to know and have and understand and appreciate so they can do something about it, Vic. And that's very much about today's discussion, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And and uh, again, you know, we can't just rely on data sets to predict the future. It's ever-changing. Data is ever-changing. And so the predictions by default then become ever-changing as well. And this is why we need to be able to look at telltale signs well ahead of the curve and the major signals out there in the market to then set up portfolio, set up our action plan and set up our purchasing or selling decisions in accordance to that, rather than looking at the small fluctuations within the data set, we're looking at the bigger pieces that are in play and let the small, small bit sort themselves out. Absolutely. And for me, and look, I'm happy to go behind the scenes of my thought process around property and uh, I'll use this as a chance to to pick uh, your gents' uh, minds, I'm sitting there going, oh, I reckon there's good buying ahead. I reckon there's going to be, you know, for those who have a good portfolio, uh, even if you're starting out and you've got a few bucks, but, you know, for those that already have a portfolio, they've been in property for a little while, there's already some signals coming out that um, if you're finance fit and you're proactive and you're ready to roll, there's going to be some good buying ahead. So I'm sitting there thinking, what are the, going to be the telltale signs that it's time to start buying. What are going to be the telltale signs that we move from a market which is going backwards to a market that will start going forward? So time in the bottom of any market is near on impossible. You don't even really know the bottom of a market three months after it's bottomed out, six months after it's bottomed out, when you can actually see the data reflecting that and how activity is impact on it. But how do you know? How do you know when things have gone from going south to going north? So I just want to break down today and give the three key signals that the market is going to accelerate in a northerly direction rather than a southerly direction. And I guess let's start off, Vic, with are we at the bottom of the market yet? 
Don't know. Don't know. We like, like you go. exactly. How you answer that. <laughs> Short podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> if, you, if you look, if you look at it, right. So most of the time, when you're looking at the bottom of the market, it's already passed. Same as the height of the market, right? We can always look back and say, yes, that was definitely the bottom. It could be anecdotal that we say that you know we are at the bottom, and I think there was an economist that actually came out in December that said, arguably, we're at the bottom of the market in Sydney. Uh, yet to be seen. The reality of it is that we need to recognize the cycles within each state and then further subset the cycles within each suburb to decide whether they have bottomed out or whether it is just a blimp and there's still more to go or they've stabilized. Mm. In fact, you know, with all of this negative talk about doom and gloom and how prices are going south a la Harry Dent, we still are seeing areas that are going up in value, even in this in inverted commas, high interest rate climate, right? Now, high interest rate because we started off with a very low base. Right? I, I, I still am adamant that we are in normal rates at the moment. And perhaps the last rate was the first of the ones that are going above normal, if you're talking averages as such. But if we come back to cycles, again, each cycle is uh, pertinent to the area and we cannot really pick it because there's few moving parts here. So. If you take certain areas where there's a lot of builders that have gone bust, you know, Melbourne's a prime example there, is that impacting the cycle? We're coming in into this phase of property investing with a lot of savings. Is that actually impacting the cycles because people can afford to hold on? And, and a good indicator of that is that uh, listings are down by almost 20%. So people aren't selling because first, if they sell, they can't rent. Because rentals, uh, rental vacancies are absolutely low. Uh, and equally importantly, they can't buy because finance is very hard to get. Yet they've got the savings to tee them over while there's a bit of certainty mapping out in markets. So they're waiting for a little bit of certainty to come in the market before they decide what to do. So the cycles are being impacted. And to make the answer shorter, we'll never know until it's well past at least a quarter of the year has gone past that point in time that we can effectively say, yes, that's the bottom of the market there. That's yeah, a good yeah. point, Vic. I think that we need to understand that during the pandemic, it was one of few times in history that every square inch of Australia was increasing in Going value, yeah, which is a rarity. Usually there is a market doing well. There's another market that's moving sideways and one even may be contracting. So they act independently of each other based on the macro effects of that economy. We're moving into that period now. And as Vic touched on, there are markets that are increasing in value today. There are markets that are going sideways and there are definitely some markets that are contracting. But we need to understand as investors, if we're trying to time the market yeah, implicitly, we're gambling. It's an educated guess at best. In fact, we did a podcast, Phil, a couple of months ago in and around people not understanding timing the market or time in the market. It's just a well-used phrase that everybody says, but nobody really or very few people understand what we're talking about when we say time in the market and timing the market. And I guess to some degree, today's topic in and around those three factors that will shape tomorrow's market, we can relate back to that podcast in and around mm. yeah, timing the market. What is it that we're talking about? And I guess the first one, which Vic alluded to, is really going to be the flow of credit. It's not so much the cost of the credit. 
Yes, mm. it hurts. It hurts that our rates have doubled or tripled in some cases. But as Vic pointed out, you know, we're still in that band, give or take, of what has historically been the interest rate. And we have handled it. We have coped with it for decades. In fact, I can remember properties, I believe, experiencing a bigger boom than what we had during the pandemic when rates were somewhere between 7 and 9%. But the flow of credit was there. And we have, I guess, over several podcasts over the years touched on that. But the flow of credit is going to be an absolute important factor on where the market goes next. And that could be done in a variety of different ways. So the buffer rate. Yeah, there are a lot of commentators that are talking that the buffer rate is past its use by date. It was put in when rates were super low and the buffer rate is at 3%. If we reduce that buffer rate down to 2%, if my maths is correct, that'll almost instantly add 10% to the top line serviceability of most individuals. Now, that's a huge, huge amount in the scheme of things when we're talking serviceability. Because the intent is still there, as we've mentioned before, the ability has been eroded. Once again, people are okay with the rate. Generally speaking, people that have been around for a long time understand, well, you know, this is actually quite normal. It's just part of the cycle. So we need to see that the, well, yeah, we do need to see, we need to see that the flow of credit back into the economy happens because that will be one of the first indicators in the following months, and it could be three months, could be six months, that we will start to see markets perpetuate. I think the first trigger point when that does happen, Steve, is that there are a lot of people that have gone from interest only into principal and interest, right? But they can't refinance because they can't qualify. So when the assessment rate is dropped, all of a sudden they are able to qualify and they can uh, reset their portfolios uh, to be able to reduce their outgoing. Right? And that sort of brings back the confidence within those people as well to say that, hang on, I was able to maintain the repayments at this higher cash flow rate. So I'm not talking about the actual interest, I'm talking about them going from principal interest back into interest only. And all of a sudden, all of that money is freed up. And then they're looking around saying, okay, what can I do with this cash flow that I've got on my hand? So this is, these are the educated investors. Uh, and more than likely, they're going to start looking at the good, solid investment areas and start jumping back into the market if they can to then capture properties because it's still well within their budget now, even at this in inverted commas higher interest rate, because they've just been able to restructure their mortgages. Yeah, I think we need to recognize though, too, Vic, that yeah, there is definite hurt within the economy. Yes. It's not just the mortgages, it's the cost of living, you know, fuel at $2 a litre and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that all adds up. And the RBA wants us to hurt. They want us to hurt so that we stop spending and we bring inflation down. So there is an argument that they want the cliff face of that P&I scenario to happen or get closer to it so people mm. really tighten the belt, so to speak, and stop pouring money into the economy and therefore the sufferance and then inflation comes down in a very general sense. But I'm also adamant they don't want to crash the property market either because that has a wealth effect scenario on how people feel and the recovery of the economy as well. So yeah, Dr. Lowe's and the, I guess the RBA are walking a very fine line in terms of trying to balance. And unfortunately, history has shown us that they never get it perfect, yeah. no matter who the, the governor was. It's a cause and effect, and it lurches from side to side forever and ever always has done. 
But that ability to be able to pivot from what was potentially the P&I scenario into or back to interest only is big. But we also, I think we also need to understand though that a lot of people, a lot of this cliff face around the fixed rates doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to roll over into a P&I scenario. It might just be into the variable interest only rate and they may have a couple of years left. So, but nonetheless, double and triple the rates well, oh, that's where the hurt is, right? You know, and, and it's it's a really it's a very complicated thing we're talking about here because to Steve's point, the Reserve Bank and the bureaucratic engine that is the Australian government have many different ways they can tinker with a, people's ability to secure debt. And we saw when interest rates were at all time lows, they increased the buffer that banks had to service borrowers against, i.e., you know, you could have got a 2.5% mortgage, however, they were assessing on the basis that that loan was 55 or 6%, uh, and that was smart and prudent at the time because, you know, the ob- objective being we want to consider people in a normalised rate environment. To Victor's point, we're probably in that normalised rate environment now. But in terms of that fine balance between bringing down inflation and making Australians hurt, and you think that's so counter-cyclical. Why, why, why is Reserve Bank, why is the government making it hard for Australians to do what they need to do, housing, wealth creation, living, and for some people putting food on the table is it's very painful. But there's a lot of different ways they can tinker and tweak with it. Now, Steve, you mentioned that uh, there's a lot of people on principal and interest that would benefit from coming down to interest only. However, because serviceability, the, the views of banks towards your serviceability hasn't changed. They don't qualify for the mortgage. And that's sort of it blows your mind, you know, the fact that they can actually pay P&I interest rates. Um, they want to reduce their cash flow but they don't qualify for a mortgage even though they can meet the serviceability. So this sort of accelerating factor, that the signals that things are starting to change, and the signals are that, hey, these changes to the way in which people secure mortgages will precipitate into changing property market movements, so, it, so properties going up rather than down, is a key one. When do you think banks will change their lending criteria, guys? When do you think APRA, the prudential regulator, will come out and go, yeah, don't worry about it. It's not a three percent buffer anymore. You know, mm. it's not a three percent buffer anymore. So your serviceability at the moment is probably factored about nine and a half percent interest rates, right? Yeah, to ten percent, correct. Ten percent, right? At ten percent yeah. above. Hence the reason why a lot of people can't afford a mortgage. You know, correct. On even paper. though they can afford on yeah. paper, even though they can actually still afford the repayments by tightening the belt and stuff. So, well, this is going to be a key thing. I, I yeah, and I guess to have a stab in the dark and answer your question, it wouldn't surprise me if it happens this year. They're going to want to see some data come out first uh, in terms of that top line inflation, but it wouldn't surprise me that they tinker with the buffer rate this year. Because let's not forget, the banks are in the business of lending money. That's how they make the majority of their money. They want it out. They don't want to be having it in their own savings no. account. And I guess actually on that, yeah, I guess the, res- the good news recipients of the higher interest rates are those people that have money in the bank, I guess, and savings. But the thing is, though, is that most smart people have just got to offset in their mortgages. You're putting that into a high-interest savings account in the bank, you're probably getting half as what you would do uh, as an enabler. So you, but, but you see now, but, but the banks the banks are getting hammered on it. They're getting pulled over the coal saying, you're charging people, you know, 6.5% mortgages, but you're only giving them 2.5% on their savings. Go figure. You know, they'll go, well, it's a cost of money. We're using different money and blah, 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 oh, yeah. the usual stuff. But, but yeah, you're, mad, you're still mad to have your money sitting in a cash account and getting oh. 2.5% interest. If well, what you already amazes have a mortgage. Me, correct. What amazes me is the amount of people that don't. Yeah. 
Like it truly is bewildering. I wouldn't. I'd say there'd be wouldn't be a week go past where, yeah, you know, we will talk to someone and they've got it sitting in a general savings, savings account. account. Just a general, a high interest saving, or just a savings account. Well, look, let's call That's it a, a let's call it a four four and a half percent savings account. Thinking they're winning and they're actually yeah, still going the, backwards. You're going backwards, right? Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's the the consequence of this tighter credit environment, whether it be the ability to borrow because of the serviceability calculus in the background or whether it be from the higher interest rates, what the effect of that, this goes back to Vic's earlier point about how some markets are still moving north, is it's it's playing with affordability, clearly. But the affordability is around what people can afford to invest. And I mentioned earlier that the intent is still there, but the ability is not. And where I think, in fact, I'm sure of it because we see it in today's market, the similarity between today and the, I guess, the middle to the back end of the GFC is that we're seeing yields increase dramatically. And even in some of the areas that are traditionally, or states or, or cities that are traditionally low yielding by contrast to other states, we're seeing them increase rapidly. And what we're also seeing in combination is that people are starting to reduce their or put their eyes on different markets in and around what they can borrow. So what they physically can afford and what the bank tells them they can afford. So an example of that, just like the GFC, was that, well, I can't afford the million dollar mortgage. I want to be an investor. I want to be a homeowner, but I can afford 750. These are the areas that I can afford at 750. So I will buy there. If you're an investor, because it's great returns, or great fundamentals. If you're a homeowner, it's got the right infrastructure, the right schooling, it's still commutable to work, whatever it may be. And so that the more affordable corridors of the market start to actually perform very, very well, just like they did at the back end of the GFC, where you know, if we take Sydney as an example, it wasn't, it was more the general rule that you'd get 5% yields back then. And that was a trigger point for a lot of investors to say, you know what, this is a really good return for what is traditionally a low-yielding area yeah. in combination with the flow of credit loosening a little bit, and in they jumped. And, and this helps with asset selection, right, because uh, people's serviceability has decreased, therefore the amount of money they can borrow decreases. That, however, doesn't say you can't be a property investor anymore, but what you can invest in will change. So you'll see this sub-market acceleration in different areas. And and this is the art. And no doubt you guys are working through this right now in, in, in at Right Property going, okay, where are those areas? Like they're the places that you want to be investing now. But this is about getting the jump, right? We're talking about what are the what are the flashpoints? What are the signals, the three signals that show, hey, we're going to start moving into that environment where, where property, let's, misnomer, yes or no, we'll probably go back up in value. We'll, we'll probably price the trade go back up, Victor. Yes or no? Yeah, it will, it will. yeah okay. All right. So that's the baseline thing. In the right areas right now. I just wanted to flag that, you know, whilst we're talking about the three key factors that um, will impact the market and, and restart the cycle as such, uh, the upward swing, it's a little bit of fool's gold to wait for all signals to line up, right? You mm, need to be premature with this and recognizing it and take into account what Steve said, right, in terms of the compression factor. Uh, so if you look at people that can't afford to borrow in the million-dollar bracket that come to the 750, there's two factors working over here. It's obviously there's more activity in that 750 that used to be in the million-dollar mark. And equally importantly, the rents are going up as well, right? So you've got that compression also happening. So they go hand-in-hand. Hand. 
in the sense that the yields become super attractive for that those suburbs. And if if you are able to afford to get into the market, the smart investors, the, the educated investors, they're jumping in and being premature and not waiting for the actual upswing. Because we know that uh, if you're talking about the change of assessment rate, I reckon we are you know, I'm a few months away from that. But obviously, we need to tame inflation. And as soon as we've 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 seen some semblance of timing in inverted commas, the likelihood is that the assessment will start changing, right? And when that happens, it's that pent up demand that will be released. So you'll be you'll be in, in heavy competition for the same asset type with other investors, right? So it's better to go in a little bit early, not too early, a little bit early, so that you are you know, facing less stiffer competition and not artificially pushing the prices up uh, in that area. You, know, you, you, choice, want to, right? you want to ride that, right? You want to mm. ride the uplift and, and getting in early is okay if you can afford it and, you know, all yep. that sort of stuff. But, but but I guess just to round out this this first point, which is the loosening of credit, and we're talking about how they'll change serviceability as an accelerant. Uh, the other thing is that, and this will be a key indicator as part of this, is is when we're at the top of the interest rate cycle. So I guess you call it the terminal rate, as in it's not going to go terminal being terminal velocity. If you jump out of a plane, you're going to go so fast before that's the fastest you'll go. There'll be a point where the rates will, will hit a ceiling. So uh, how far off are we, gents, if you want to get your crystal balls out? Uh, <laughs> I think you, guys, you guys are both economists, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whole heap of letters after our names, <laughs> but but, um, but we, you've got to get a sense for it, right? Because yeah, you do. These yeah. yeah, and I don't think if you asked any economist and they honestly answered when they think it is that they'd be having a stab in the dark as well. You know, it's it's very very fickle environment, no doubt. But I, I think the terminal rate's a very important one because we and we saw it a little earlier on last year or midway last year when i believe some economists and some of the big banks came out and said look we think we're at the top of the rate cycle and we could see in the in the immediate data so ground truth data so much more activity on yeah. the ground based on that i guess that say so well the banks think we're at the top of the rate so now we know what we're dealing with that's our baseline as an investor so it's a very important point in and around that sort of credit availability, so too is when the powers to be, whomever they are at the time, say, we think we've got inflation under control. We believe that we're at the top of the rate cycle now. And I think that's going to be another trigger for people to go, right, quickly re-budget. Let's assess. Can we afford? We think- well, if you're going to go through the pain of refinancing and doing all that sort of stuff, you get greater utility doing it at a point in time when, you know, rates aren't going to keep going up as well, right? Like, you know, that's well, a very a, practical thing. Yeah, very practical. But at the moment, a lot of people are just hanging back saying, well, you know, what if I buy today, what happens if it goes to 7%? Fair mm. question. So that's why it's very important once we hit that terminal rate uh, that that will be in the another piece in the puzzle. Yeah. yeah. So and, and we won't know in terms of the terminal rate apart from the verbatim from the Reserve Bank in yeah. terms of, okay, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. we think we've done enough, or there'll be a softening of tone, right? They're not going to come out and say, well, this is the right uh, last interest rate price, especially with the grilling uh, that we got from Senate as well, right? They're not going to come out and say, this is the last one. Imagine every single thing you say gets questioned and people look at the the intrinsic 
difference in inflection to how you say something, whether or not you're at the top of the rate environment. It's funny. Just even it? the tone, right? Yeah, and, just even the tone. Even yeah. the tone. Even the tone. Yeah. Even even the body language around it, right? Like mm-hmm. this is what your real practitioners will be looking at. But we're talking about the loosening of the credit. This is all connected with it. But the, the second point, so you know that they look for those. That they're the clues you ought to be looking for to we're going to move into an upwards right. um price you know, price increasing environment, the capital value of your property. Second one is is when the government starts making it easier for people to accelerate activity in property. So government stimulus and whatever that looks like. And that might become come in a form of um more initiatives for first-time buyers and might be around uh facilitating speedier building approvals. But building approvals are a way off at the moment and so far away from where we need to be in order to sustain the current population, let alone a growing population, uh, where there's any tinkering around tax. We have the budget coming up in May. I don't know what's going to go on there. Who knows? But this is another clue, isn't it, Vic, that things are starting to change? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, when you look at a really good example of uh, government stimulus was during the pandemic at the start of the pandemic, the Western Australian government came out with a grant. You know, you build a home, you'll get 20k in grant. Don't care whether it's an investment property, don't care whether it's a principal place of residence, so long as it's in a personal name, we'll give you the grant. And um, that actually created a big market out there in terms of pretty much anyone that could build at the time jumped on and built because of 20k grant, right? So that's a really good example of market stimulus by the government, right? And um, if you look at other things that are being floated around right now, you know, the shared equity schemes, uh, both in Sydney and, and uh, sorry, sorry, in uh, New South Wales and in uh, uh, Victoria. Uh, and then, of course, the stamp duty concessions, I think uh, here in New South Wales, we've um, sounded the, the bell for change in terms of stamp duty, where first-time buyers up to one and a half million have got a choice whether they pay stamp duty or whether they pay ongoing land tax or whatever name they want to call it. So all of those incentives, all of those changes will create momentum within the market, create noise within the market. And when you start getting this momentum happening, more and more people jump on, right? So it's it's actually giving that initial inertia to the market, to a sector of the market. And I reckon the biggest thing they can uh, do is state, local, and state um, uh, federal government is if it's the local government, so I'm talking councils, they may make contributions less to build. If it's state, they may be giving state grants to first home buyers. And federally, there may be grants and um, equity schemes, shared equity schemes, and the ease of bureaucracy to kickstart new bills. The Focus won't be on the established properties. It'll be more on the new builds because we need more houses, right? We've got next level immigration, which is still a catch-up immigration. It's not like it's all of a sudden more people are coming in. But what's not being flagged is all of these people that are coming in for education now, all of these Mm. people that are coming in on work visas uh, over here now, they too will need accommodation. And we're already in crisis. We're only counting on the 200,000 people that are coming in as permanent residents. What about the workers? What about the students? Yeah, it's a crazy scenario, right? And and that's why I believe, and I'm sure you're the same, Vic, that somewhere in the immediate and then worst case scenario, medium term future is that there is going to be government intervention slash yeah. stimulus in some way, shape or form, whether that's from a federal state or even a local, local government scenario, because 
they're in a position where they are damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Mm. So if they don't, people will continue to live in cars, tents, caravans, and that issue will accelerate. So to put that, that comment in perspective, the vacancy rate has dropped again to another record low. And the numbers are that out of every thousand properties, there are only 10 vacant. But just absorb that for a minute. Only 10 out of every thousand properties across Australia are vacant. Like that's a horrific, horrific number. And as you rightly mentioned, with immigration, population growth, students, workers, even on temporary visas, it's going to exaggerate what is already a crisis. So if you're the government, federal, state, or even local, you're sitting back and saying, well, what what do we do about this? If we release the hounds now in terms of intervention, credit policy, and stimulus in some way, shape, or form around grants, well, we're we're not helping inflation because people Mm. are going to jump in the market. But on the other hand, we've got this crisis because nobody's got a roof over their head or very few people A lot of people are struggling to get a roof over their head, let alone when they do get one, to afford it. And that dovetails back into point number one in and around credit policy to allow there to be more accommodation built. And, and And you're right, it won't be too much around the existing property. It'll be around the construction of new. But there's a problem as well because you can't get a builder, you can't get a tradesman, and the, the raw material cost is still at 30 to 40% above pre-pandemic <laughs> This is This levels. is the irony of it all, right, Steve? Right, it's crazy. You know, we, yeah. we, we need to build more stuff. The government still makes it hard, right? The amount of bureaucratic red tape in order to get a development application approved is an absolute nightmare, right? Absolute nightmare. So that's stifling activity, right? Point number one. Point number two, builders can't make a buck at the moment. It's hard, particularly ones who have fixed-price contracts from – some time ago before this inflationary cycle. So less builders out there. We need migration. We need skilled migration because we need those skilled tradespeople coming in to help the building cycle. Like so we're just stuck in this little melting pot right now. And it's just it's it's not simmering, it's boiling and it's about to boil over because if we don't get more properties built, that's less properties for property investors to buy, to rent to Australians that need those properties. And and the government over the many, many consecutive governments have made a decision that rental accommodation in this country is largely borne by the private investor. Yes, yeah, yeah, the retail social, investor. Yeah, retail Correct. investor. Um, there is social housing for those people that need social housing. And we do not this is a property for podcasts, right? So I'm conscious that it might sound we're exacerbating this this idea of property investors are wrecking property markets Australia. We're very conscious of some of the social issues which are impacting Australians right now, sleeping in cars and all that sort of stuff. Right? Right. Like, it's outside of the scope of this podcast, but I do acknowledge and I do point to that because it is a huge problem uh, for Australian and Australians uh, who are struggling to find a roof over their head. And I, and I look to the government to sort that out. That's out of state, federal, local area. That's their job to do that. However, Property investors support rental accommodation in Australia. So they need to make it easier for us to build properties, for they make it easier for us to develop properties. They need to make it financially viable for Australians to put their own skin in the game to support rental accommodation. I can't remember the numbers, like 91% of all properties are run by private investors. Well, less than three percent, less than three percent of rental properties or accommodation are supplied by the government. There you go. In other parts of the world, it's massive, right? Go to Russia if you want. It's yeah. one of the biggest landlords. Uh, well, maybe not now. But maybe it's, not um... now. Maybe the wrong point. But, but places <laughs> in Europe, and, and you look to Europe as well, big conglomerates own rental 
properties. They they build Correct. to rent, and that's that's yep. the nature of how they do things there, right? But, but they make it viable. The government make makes it viable, it viable for people viable. to do for the but companies. In Australia, to do it. they make it viable for individual mum and dad investors, which largely most people are, to invest in property because they get incentives by way of negative gearing and other tax stimulus. And this goes to the point when you start seeing these changes. It's got to be an accelerating factor to show that property markets will shift back into gear. And just just on that, which is really nothing to do with the subject, but in terms of allowing the retail investor slash private investor to do what they want to do, the consequence of that in the future is that we are self-funded and less of a burden on the economy by the government having to prop us up when we retire, hopefully. <laughs> but, but you see what's happening now. Um, the Treasurer is coming out trying to beating up the previous government about releasing super early for people to actually yeah. uh, uh, navigate the COVID pandemic. Now they're saying, oh, that's a stupid idea. You shouldn't release super early for Australians. The government don't want to be paying people pensions, right? They would much rather people draw on the superannuation, which is contributed by their employee, which, by the way, is going up again for all employees uh, uh, in July. So get used to it, right? But but this is the way it works, right? So we're talking about property investment. Hence the reason why people look to empower their retirement by investing in property so they're not a burden on the state and they can contribute in many different ways. A lot of this comes down to these accelerating factors is, is consumer confidence. Now, consumer confidence is measured in many different ways. Often it's a report from one of the major banks or one of the big researchers' houses saying consumer confidence is up or down X number of points, right? Consumer confidence, my view, and you guys probably subscribe to it, is very individual. And it will be the property investors have a, a healthy appetite towards their own consumer confidence. They're probably going to read the tea leaves and note earlier these different subtle changes that are happening and are able to, at an aggregate level, join all the dots together and say, ha-ha, now it's time. Now it's time. Where is a different question, but now it's time. So consumer confidence is absolutely the third point. It's about all these things coming together, growth, migration, building approvals, loosening credit, low vacancy rates, new buildings coming on, all this sort of stuff. And you'll have your own trigger point. You'll have your own flashpoint. You'll have your own mechanism for understanding when your consumer confidence is positive enough to take action, Victor. Yeah, I think the confidence will come individually when people see a little bit of clarity in terms of where things are heading. So, you know, yes, we had the peak of the interest rate cycle. Yes, there's lots of government incentive coming in. More so, it's the flow of credit. And seeing other people doing it will get other people to do it. Because we, we've gone into COVID, right? And we're sitting on massive equity, regardless of where you see the market. We're sitting on massive equity. We're sitting on massive savings as well. So it's just a matter of getting rid of this collateral damage, right? And, and, and talking about collateral damage, right? So we, we tried to curb inflation and the collateral damage was property. Now, we are going to restart the property cycle and the collateral damage will be inflation. So it's, it's it's a you know a chicken and egg scenario as to uh, what do we focus on first. Mm. I mean, what if the question to the governments or the, the governments would be asking themselves and the powers to be is what's more and what's more important to them that people have one of the basic necessities of life being accommodation, and we deal with inflation, yeah. or that we try to control inflation and you know we just deal with people's circumstances at a later date. You know, they're just mm. going to, have to suffer now, like bugger of a job. Just saying, I'm glad I don't. I'm glad I don't have it. But yeah. nonetheless, I think the consumer confidence piece is is very very important because we can see throughout history that once the collective has the confidence, it becomes a self perpetuating market. Mm. Right, as long as those other pieces 
are involved as well, which you know, it, that too is a chicken or egg scenario. And as we've mentioned in prior podcast, with today's technology and instant information and instant news, it doesn't take much of a collective to change the narrative and the mindset so that that self-perpetuating scenario happens, just like it did at the beginning of COVID. And as, as a side note, I think that a lot of the people that are, and this may sound harsh, but a lot of the people that potentially are under sufferance at the moment in terms of investors, I think were collectors. They weren't investors. Mm. Yeah. They were collectors. So they were doing it because someone else did it. And then my broke brother-in-law at my barbecue said that he's made a million dollars, so I'll jump in because he's not real smart. And if he's done it, I can do it. And it became this beast. Obviously, credit was easy. I want a million dollars. How much do you want? Here it is. And you could say the same back in 2001, 2000, mm. 2001, you know, with the you know, their credit piece back then, which initiated confidence, was the low doc loan without any substantiation. Yeah. Fast forward to the pandemic, super low rates, and I guess easier assessment allowed people to take the money and invest, not always wisely, though. Mm, yeah, and, I guess and, the the biggest thing here is like the flow of credit dictates a whole lot of what's going to happen out in the market. And when you really look at these three key things that uh, we think will will restart the cycle or, or create that upswing, only two of them really need to fire at once or in close succession for that momentum to happen. And the third will automatically fall into place. Yeah, I agree with that. Just one thing though, coming back to the confidence piece where we're getting well, it would be easy to, I guess, be in a grey area of making a decision when we see all the different narrative out there around doom and gloom, negativity, negativity, negativity. Then we get this splash of news as an example on the weekend for two weeks in a row, auction clearance rates, extremely, Strong, extremely healthy. Last weekend. Yeah, yeah, over 70% in, say, the, the Sydney and up to, I think it was 85% in some of the other regions. Now, that's a very balanced market. That's that's mm. a confidence piece. So there are segments of the market that are confident to bid at auction. And if you dig a little deeper, it's clearly it's an auction. So it's not a private treaty transaction where you have a cooling off period, valuation, final assessment, final approval, then go unconditional. This is at the drop of the hammer. Mm. You are committed. And it's oh, a very, it's a very um emotionally elevated way to purchase property, yet people seem to have the confidence to push it over 70% as an auction clearance race. So is it short-lived? Is it a flash in the pan? That's yet to be seen. Well, the point around a balanced market, I think, is a smart one. And, and to early, Victor's earlier point, uh, interest rates are pretty normal right now, like their long-term average. And they might go up a little bit further, but they'll probably, they'll probably um, sort of sit to where we are right now until you start seeing rates come down and 2024 potentially, but a balanced property market. I've been chatting with some auctioneers, Steve, and and their view, and they they sort of 100% clearance rates uh, over the weekend for them. Uh, one of the particular seven out of seven, they went. The market wasn't crazy. There's just this this understanding and appreciation that what the property is worth, and vendors are happy to sell at that price, and buyers are happy to buy at that price. You know, they're not knocking prices out of the roof. They're not like Hey, look at this market's going crazy and people are spending all this money on property. It's just a very balanced market. Yeah. Um, and, and people and- people are smart though, Phil. That that this comes down to education, you know, information, availability, et cetera. 
but also the dynamics of the actual asset class itself. But well, where can I rent? Mm. Rents through the roof. It's in fact in some areas it's cheaper to own it than it is to rent it. And that's crazy considering interest rates that you have right Correct. Now. Yeah. Right. So when those people, when that cohort have the ability to have a deposit, whether that be from savings, whether that be from government intervention via owner grants, they'll purchase. Mm. And that area will then transition into, into perpetuation as well. But people, people are they're not stupid. If it's cheaper to own it than it is to rent it, if they understand that there's no supply coming down the pipeline, if they understand that the population is growing at a rate of knots and that immigration is in the hundreds of thousands, and they are financially secure based on their own household budget and the bank is willing to give them money, why wouldn't you? There you go. I like it. So they're the three the three clues, the three flashpoints is the three sort of identifying markers you need to look for as an investor that we're going to shift from a, a softening real estate market into a rising uh, real estate market. We're talking about the value of properties to Victor's point. There is properties that are already doing this. There is areas of Australia which are seeing positive growth rather than negative growth, but we're talking sort of a little bit more generalized here. So you've got to find it. So we're only, th- this is a, a framework to consider this, but then you need to get into the tactical elements and no doubt Guys like uh, Stephen Victor of the Right Property Group can help you do this. You get all this stuff sorted out to Steve's point. All those things, your budget's good, your finances are good, everything is good is when you can start looking at buying a property. And and you need to have that stuff sorted out before you even chat with property strategists like Steve uh, and Victor. But there you go. I think that's pretty good. Number one, the listening credit, clue one. Two, government stimulus. And three, uh, consumer confidence. And you'll see that in yourself, but also you'll see it coming out in the market. Vic, that's pretty complicated. People are trying to scratch in their head going, I don't really get it. Um, Mm. But I sort of understand and appreciate that I've got to do something. What do they do? Can they call you guys? What's what's the the best thing? First thing is to decide, you know, not to sit on the sidelines because what you do right now in this couple of months will set up your portfolio and your wealth gain for the next cycle. So it's easy to reach out to us uh, on the socials or go into our website. And uh, you do get to speak with us eventually once you've spoken with Melissa, who is also a very accomplished uh, property investor. She gets you ready to get the best of our times. Uh, and we'll tell you straight uh, in terms of whether you should do anything right now, whether you shouldn't, or whether you should really uh, have a closer look at your mortgages, your household budgets, and all that to really take advantage of how things will pan out in the coming years. It's a good point, Vic. I think if you're a serious investor in any asset class, you're never idle. You're always Mm. in a state of preparation. Even if you can't physically transact, there's always that preparation phase. And that could be now for a lot of people. Yeah, preparation is key. Be prepared. Um, It's good. Really enjoy the chat, gents. Uh, Remember, rightpropertygroup.com.au. Go and check these guys out. Uh, And um, uh, best way to contact is Facebook, email, Vic. Via socials, or you can uh, go to the website. There's a contact me form. Cool. And they can chat about all the stuff that we spoke about today and anything else that's on your mind. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, That's Investing Insights for Right Property Group. We'll be back again next month. Until then, bye-bye. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs, and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property, or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you.